last verse of John's Gospel. But let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you so much. You're a great and mighty God. And um, Lord, I pray that you'd give us boldness in these last days. And as our country is um, in turmoil and um, seems to be getting worse and worse, as our world gets worse and worse, Lord, we know that your return is drawing near. So um, help us to be ready. Help us to be about your business, Lord, not our own. And that we'd redeem the time, Lord, because the days are evil. Every single day, every moment that we have, um, Lord, whether that's by prayer, sharing your word, just talking about you. And so we praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right. Jeez, I'm having all kinds of technical difficulties today. So John 7, verse 53. So I don't know why they put 53 and verse 1 in two different spots. It's like one sentence. Um, So it's just kind of crazy to me. Who was it? Stephanus, who was riding on his horse doing this. You know, trying to see where he's going to put the verse. That's the... That's the scholarly joke, I think. So, um, um, okay, so John 53. Let's read the whole passage. This is the woman caught in adultery. It says, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst... They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So um, you may have a note in your Bible if you have um, the New King James's note. says over 900, that this is um, passage from 753 to 811 are omitted in, most man, or in the oldest manuscripts, but it says it is present in over 900 manuscripts. Um, so there's, there's some dispute whether this should be in the Bible or not. Um, there are about 6,000 different Greek manuscripts, just Greek. Okay? Manuscript just means it was written out by hand. There's about 28,000 total of manuscripts that are written out by hand, but that includes Latin and the Peshetta, which is... Um, uh, Aramaic, uh, you know, different languages and stuff like that. But so, more than any other ancient document in history, 
do we have of the New Testament? So more manuscripts than anything else. Homer's Iliad, I believe, is second. It doesn't even come close. It's like a few hundred manuscripts, you know, next to the Bible, which is thousands of manuscripts. Um, so they dispute it because it's not in some of the oldest manuscripts. These are usually Alexandrian manuscripts. You know, people get all caught up in which manuscripts you should use and stuff like that. Personally, I'm like, just we got a plethora of them. It's so awesome that we have so much evidence for what the New Testament says. You know, we could get all caught up into which one we should use. And you got, you got, you got the Texas Receptus guys, which um, the New King James uses, the Old King James uses. Then you have the guys who are only for the critical text. And, um, you know, when I read my New King James and I put it against a New American Standard, there's really not a whole lot of differences. Um, some minor details, stuff like that but nothing that I think we should fight over. I use the New King James because you have so much information in the translator's notes. That's one of the reasons. I think it's an excellent translation too, very accurate um, and stuff like that. So that's, those are the primary reasons why I use the New King, King James. Um, but again, this isn't in the oldest manuscripts. So it's a, this, this text is actually found in a couple different places. At the end of John's Gospel, so it's like somebody almost forgot it and then put it in, or they thought, well, this should be in here, so I'm going to put it at the end of John's Gospel. Others put it at the middle of chapter 7, so after the, the middle of the feast. We read that already uh, a couple weeks ago. And also in Luke 21:38, it's found. So some say, well, this is evidence that, of a text trying to get into the biblical text. So should it be there or not? I'll let you guys be the judge. Um, another group says, majority of, um, I'm sorry. Another group says it's not that, that it was trying to work its way in, but that men were trying to eradicate it. And you actually see this in church history, um, that people have said this about this text. Um, because adultery was such a serious crime. You know, anymore it's like, oh, they committed adultery. Oh, shame on you. You know, in the Old Testament, you got stoned or strangled if you committed adultery. It was a um, crime worthy of death. In many other cultures, it's a crime worthy of death. And so a lot of people say, well, it shouldn't, um, we, don't want, we don't like that passage. We don't like that passage. Our women are going to become, you know, scandalous and stuff like that. If they see that there's forgiveness for adultery, Lord forbid it. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be, surely be put to death. So in the early centuries of the church, many believed that adultery could not be forgiven. Cyprian in AD 250 says, Certain bishops who preceded him in the providence of North Africa thought that reconciliation ought not to be given to adulterers and allowed sexual infidelity. No place at all for repentance. So no place at all for repentance, church, um, the church father Cyprian says. So offenses were taken at this passage in John's Gospel. Ambrose in 375 AD, who was the bishop of Milan, says while commenting on David's sin with Bathsheba, he says in the same way, also the Gospel lesson which has been read may have caused no small offense to the unskilled. So they were... They were um, basically saying that at this text in John, that people are offended by it. 
those who are unskilled, who don't know the gospel, who don't understand the Bible, that they're offended by it. In which you have noticed an adulteress was brought to Christ and dismissed without condemnation. Did Christ err that he did not judge righteously? Is it not that such a thought should come into our our minds? Augustine, you know, St. Augustine, in about 400 AD says, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given, to imp- given impunity and sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the adulteress, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. So he had noticed in some manuscripts that this text was missing, and he says they removed it, lest their wives be given over to impunity. Jerome in 385 A.D., who translated the Greek into the uh, um, Latin, which is called the Vulgate, it's the one that the Catholic Church used for thousands of years. He says, in the Gospel according to John, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, it is found is found the story of the adulterous woman who is accused before the Lord. So he says in many manuscripts. So he defended it. He believed it should be there. Um, An interesting one is in A.D. 230. This is the earliest one I could find where this is is mentioned, Um, which most uh, of the manuscripts, it's not until after 400 A.D. that you see this come into play. So it's really interesting that there's something from the middle of the 3rd century, so 230 A.D. It's called the Diascalia. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of resembles the didache. Aaron will know what that is. Maybe somebody else will too. It just means teachings, but it's not the didache. It's, it's something different. And it was supposed to be written by the apostles. It's not. It's more of an apocryphal type writing. But since it's early date and it includes this, um, this passage, it kind of gives evidence to support it. So it says in, in the didascalia, it says, to do as he also did with her, that had sinned, whom the elders sat before him, and leaving the judgment in his hands, departed. But he, the searcher of hearts, asked her, and said to her, Have the elders condemned thee, my daughter? She saith unto him, Nay, Lord. And he saith unto her, Go thy way, neither do I condemn thee. So, um, I don't personally see any reason why this would be a made-up story. Okay, That's kind of insane to me to say that somebody made this story up when it would be such an offense to those who read it, right? Um, so I would tend to agree. If, it, if it's not actually part of the text, okay? I'll leave that open. That's not actually a part of the text. If it's not part of the text, I believe it's still a true story, as do most commentators and scholars, that it's a literal account. It's a true account of Jesus with this woman who's caught in adultery. I have, however, do, I'm just going to say I believe that it should be there, you know? Um, it's such a powerful story. Exegetically, it's powerful. Aaron taught on it a while back, and you just saw the, the, um, him pulling out of the text and reading throughout the, uh, the Old Testament and everything and, and just how powerful it was. Um, D.A. Carson, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, the team of professors at Moody Bible College um, all believe that it's a true account and is nonetheless than the Word of God. You know, So there are Tons of reasons to say this is scripture. I do, after reading it over and over again and reading the surrounding text, it, to me it fits. All right, to me it fits. But it says in verse 53 of chapter 7, And everyone went to his own house, 
Then verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why did he go to the Mount of Olives? What's on the Mount of Olives? The Garden of Gethsemane. All right? That's what's on the Mount of Olives. There's an olive grove there called the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays before he's crucified. And when we see him in that garden, they say Judas takes them there because he knows Jesus is always there. That's one of his favorite places to pray. And so Jesus goes there alone. Everybody else goes to their own house. I tell you what, that is the life of a man of God. You'll be alone. If you truly seek the Lord, if you truly want to walk with him, you're going to be alone. That's why it's so important that we come together. You guys should be craving this time to spend with each other. Craving it. Waiting for it day by day, week by week. Can I tell you what? When I go to work, I'm alone. There's not other believers there. Maybe a couple. And I crave fellowship with them. There's one old lady. Her name's Velma. And every time I see her, it's just like a party. You know? We start talking about Jesus. And she's 80, maybe 90 years old. You know? She's just... But there's that communion of the Spirit the moment we speak to each other. I crave that time. But the rest of the time, I'm alone. I think it was, my boss came in this week. He's all, what's the word? I'm all, Genesis through, Genesis through Revelation. And he's, what? I'm all, Genesis through Revelation. That's the word. And he goes, well, what'd that ever do for me? And I tell you what, my anger just burned. I was so angry. Not necessarily at him, kind of. I mean, like, how selfish can you be? You know the Bible is the word of God. Deep in your spirit, you know. I just did a wedding on Friday night. My wife, were t- wife and I were talking about it. It's like everybody there knows that what I gave them was the word of God. There was a response. My wife was saying a lot of people looked really uncomfortable, which you know you really want to do at a wedding. Make people uncomfortable. Seriously. Because you're giving them the word of God. There should be a reaction. And so I'm happy for that. Be uncomfortable. Deal with it. And then come to faith in Christ, I pray. But we are so alone. And that's why it's so important that we spend time together when we can. On Wednesday nights, Sundays, be united together in fellowship. And prayer, praying for each other, lifting each other up to the Lord throughout the week, even. But he's alone. Everybody else has gone to their comfortable places, to their own houses. And Jesus is on the mountain praying. You can only imagine what he's praying. What, do you, what did he say in the last chapter? What's the great thing that he proclaimed? He said in... Um, Verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he had proclaimed this in the temple courts. Thousands of people heard him. I can only imagine he's praying for all those that heard his message. I can imagine he's praying for his disciples. I can imagine he's praying, getting prepared for what's going to happen on this day. When the Pharisees try to trap him again, want to put him to death. can only imagine he's in silent worship to his father. 
communion, just praying, spending time with his Father. I just think Jesus' life was defined by prayer. Was defined. What did the disciples ask him? They never asked him, hey, Lord, teach us how to cast out these demons. Teach us how to preach the word. Teach us how to study. They never said any of those things. What did they say? Teach us to pray, as John did his disciples. And they asked him after they had seen him pray. It said that he was in a certain place in, in Luke's gospel praying. And when he came down, his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. I mean, can you imagine what would be coming out of Jesus Christ as he's praying? The sincerity, the conviction that he had. When we pray, what is it like? Oh, Lord, bless my wife. Thank you for making her so pretty. Lord, thank you for my children. They're so good looking. You know, I mean, kind of like fickle prayer. I mean, I do pray that, like, a lot. Lord, thank you. Holy Spirit-filled hottie. That's what I prayed for before we got married. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. <laughs> um, but so many times our prayers are fickle. We need to know how to pray. Pray with boldness, compassion, a sincerity. Right? And what is it when a Christian is not in prayer? When he's not relying on the Lord, or she is not relying on the Lord continually. What is that? It's sin. I'd say it's pride. To think you need to pray less than Jesus Christ did? That's insanity. The stench of our pride ascends up to heaven. It's a stench in the nostrils of God. How much do you rely on him? Jesus spends nights in prayer. I tried to, I've tried to be spiritual like that before, and yeah, I just fall asleep. But I tell you what, if I knew the presence of God like Jesus did, if I really knew God the way Jesus does, I tell you what, my prayers would be a whole different thing. That's why we must search him out, seek him out, to really know him, to really know him. So verse 2, it says, now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Now just imagine this. This woman is being brought in. She's being drugged in, perhaps barely hanging on to her clothes maybe under a sheet or whatever it is they gave her after she's caught in the very act of adultery. She's tossed down in the middle of the temple courts, probably the court of, courts of women. Jesus is there. He's been teaching. She slumps over in fear, knowing that she is condemned for what she has done, knowing that she should probably condemn herself and say, woe is me. I'm a dead woman, and I should be. Imagine all this condemnation being heaped upon her. 
and they dump her on the ground before Jesus. She's seen the cruelty of these men, probably of the religious leaders. Some believe that the man was one of these religious leaders, which wouldn't be surprising. And she, they put her down before Jesus. And I'm sure she had heard about him. The entire world's heard about Jesus at this point. All of Jerusalem is in a stir about who this man is who performs miracles and confronts the religious leaders, turns over the tables of the, um, those who buy and sell in the temples, who's shouting out in the temple, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink, claiming that he is God, saying that he is the Son of God, and there's no one like him. Just imagine, she's heard all this. And now she is put before him. And is she going to be filled with terror at that thought? Or is she going to be filled with hope? Can you imagine her asking herself that? Am I supposed to be scared right now? I'm before this man. Perhaps she's read of what the Messiah will do. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, it says all his garments will be stained with blood because he's going to trample the enemies of God. You know, what does it say? He, who is this who comes from Basra with garments stained? You know, the Messiah is going to trample all of his enemies, and she is one of them right now. She is one of them. She's an adulterer, a sinner, a re- in rebellion against her God. There's no reason to think that she's not a Jewish woman. And now her fate rests on him. So she is set before him, and he is her judge. But Jesus is going to flip this, and he's going to judge her accusers. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? I can only also imagine corruption is placed before perfection. Corruption is placed before perfection. And what is the end result going to be? She's heard the charge against her. Verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught, caught in adultery, the very act. That's the charge. And then she heard the verdict. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Imagine knowing that you're going to be stoned, that you're going to be pelted with large rocks. And then you might be thrown down some stairs and a large rock dropped on you. Imagine her thinking this. Oh my goodness, what is going to happen to me? This is going to hurt a lot. And then she hears the question given to Jesus. But what do you say? I just imagine her trembling in all her shame, and all her disgrace, and all her fear, terrified and yet maybe hopeful. But what do you say? Can you imagine her looking up at Jesus? What does he say? This man who's going around healing people, teaching the wonderful truths of God. What does he say? What does he say about me? And on the other hand, these men had brought her, who had brought her are unjust, because they only brought her. They get bribed by the man who was with her. Was he one of their friends? 
one of their companions. So where is, where is he? The law says both are to be stoned. It says if a man is found lying with a woman, in Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is fi- found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. And in the, the law, you also know that um, this was supposed to be inspected to find out if this is true, if the witnesses are telling the truth. Okay? There was a procedure and stuff like that. And then verse 6 back in John, it says, This they said, testing him, that they might have something with which to accuse him. Now here's the trap. If Jesus says, don't stone her, then he's unjust. Right? She has sinned, a sin worthy of death. Worthy of death. So if he says, don't stone her, forgive her, then he's unjust. He's an unjust judge. Okay, like we've talked about so many times here. If somebody commits a horrible crime, kills people, does whatever, and then they're brought before a judge, and that judge says, you're fine, just go ahead and go. I know you won't do it again. I know you feel bad. You know, shame on you. You know, just go. Then he's an unjust judge. Right? On the other hand, if he says, stone her, then he's guilty before Rome, because Jerusalem or Israel did not have the right to put anybody to death. Rome had taken that from them. It was now their right because Israel belonged to Rome. And so either way, Jesus' answers is going to be wrong. Okay. Then it says, but Jesus stooped and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Do you know what Jesus wrote? No, you don't. You can think you do, but you don't. Right? Everybody's got an idea of what Jesus wrote. I have some ideas. I'm going to share them with you, but it's all speculation, okay? And this is what people have said throughout history, but it's all speculation, all right? Um, Number one, some believe he was writing down the Ten Commandments. I think that's a really good one. Just writing down the Ten Commandments in the dust, you know? The Ten Commandments were inscribed by the finger of God, and here you have the finger of God on the temple floor inscribing into it, into the dust, Another time we see the finger of God written in the book of Daniel. So I want you to go to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. Right before Hosea. Is that right? Yeah, before Hosea. Right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 5. All right. Verse 1, Belshazzar, the king, this is the grandson to Nebuchadnezzar, made a great feast for a thousand thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. Father, grandfather, it's kind of the same thing in the Bible, okay? A lot of times. Um which was taken from the temple which, he had, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they take these sacred vessels and begin partying with them, treating them as vain things, just showing off what they have done to the God of Israel. 
Verse 4, they drink wine, they praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. I mean, that's just, would be creepy, right? All of a sudden, this big hand appears. You know, no body attached to it or anything, just a big hand. I mean, it doesn't say how big it was or anything like that. I really don't know. Um, Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosed, and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So, um, wise men show up. They can't give the interpretation. His wife tells him, you know what? There's a man in whom is the spirit of the mighty God. And he used to talk to your, your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And he was filled with wisdom. And so he sends her to go get him. He is brought to Belshazzar. And he gives a scathing judgment against Belshazzar for this. He says, even though you knew all the things that happened to your father, Nebuchadnezzar, how he was basically made crazy, God made him crazy, made him dwell on the fields like an animal for seven years, And then he came back when he had uh, proclaimed that there is no God but Yahweh. So he makes Belshazzar know that he is responsible for the light that he has given through the accounts of his father's life. And I was thinking about that, and I think that's a pretty big point to consider. We at this time and day and age have more to be accountable for than ever in the history of the world. We have been given so much light. We have so much knowledge. I think I read a lot of, um, you know, and listen to a lot of old Puritans and dead people and stuff like that, and there's things that they didn't understand that we are pretty sure that we have a pretty good grasp on now. We have been given so much light and received so much light, and therefore we are um, accountable for that light that has been given us, just like Belshazzar is. Then verse um, 22 in chapter 5 of Daniel says, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of gold, of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written, Many, many, tickle you farsen. Now, just for Nebuchadnezzar to look at that, all he sees is number, numbered, weighed, divided. So what does that mean? Number, weighed, divided? Because everybody to come in, all the astrologers, soothsayers, all these um, supposed wise men, and they don't have any clue. Number, weighed, divided? What does that mean? And so he's going to give the interpretation, Daniel is. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of each word, many. 
God has numbered your kingdom and it is finished. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And press, it's from Euphorson, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It's been divided, you're out. Medes and the Persians are going to reign. So did Jesus write many, many Tekel Euphorson in, in the dirt there? That's another time we see perhaps the hand of God writing. I don't know. I told you I didn't know. Okay? Maybe, probably not. Maybe he did. I don't know. Some think that every man who is there is an adulterer. And so Jesus starts writing down Peggy, Sue, Monica, Bernice, you know, all the names of the, the women that they had committed adultery with. Some think he's writing down the, sin, the sins of those men who are standing there. So like Bob, that's not a Jewish name, but it's what I thought of at the moment. Bob, embezzler. Joe, adulterer. Steve, idolater. Praise to other gods or something like that. You know. Some believe it's a reference to Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So some think that that, I don't know why it would bring such conviction to their hearts, because they wouldn't think they've forsaken the Lord God. You know? And um, I figured I'd try my, my, my hand at you know, figuring out what he wrote. And I found an interesting verse in Numbers 5, verses 11 through 24. So go ahead and go there. Numbers 5. And remember, all this is speculation. But isn't it fun to try to figure out what the Bible is saying? I mean, it's so awesome to be able to go back and forth and, you know, compare things and, and, and do the work of studying the scriptures. And so that's what, it's kind of my point in doing this. So Numbers 5, verse 11, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near, and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel. Okay, holy water in an earthen vessel. Jesus is the fountain of living waters. And he is in an earthen vessel at this time as he's down on the earth. And take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle. Put it into the water and the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head and put the offering for remembrance in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. So they take some of the dust off the floor of the tabernacle, sprinkle it in this water that is pure water because that dust had been in the presence of God. 
okay? And it's going to bring a curse on her if she's guilty. Verse 19, And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man is lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness, while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man, some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly to swell. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. So I think more of a symbolic thing is to write these curses in the book and then like scrape them off. Like these are the curses, they're in the water now, when really it's just the dust in the water. So um, I don't know if this is some allusion to what Jesus is doing at this point. You know, he's writing in the dust on the temple floor. Is there an adulteress there? Yes. But how about Israel? Israel has been adulterous to its Lord. Read the book of Hosea. It's a picture of God and his people that forsake him and go aside and worship other gods. Forsake the Lord. And so you have kind of all the, the picture there. You have the living water, Jesus Christ himself. You have the earthen vessel, Jesus Christ himself. You have the dust on the temple floor. You have the adulterers, Israel. God is jealous for his people. God is a jealous God, it says over and over in the Old Testament. He's jealous for his people. And so perhaps this is some kind of allusion to that. But it's only speculation. That's my disclaimer. Yeah. But uh, So let's go on. Verse 7. When they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So there's, a, again, a lot of speculation to know what he wrote but whatever he wrote, he stands up and he says, whoever's without sin, and they all see what he's been writing. And I don't think he's doodling like some people say. Like, oh, he's making a little house and, you know, little flowers and stuff like that. No, it says he wrote on the ground. So just stick with that. And he says, he was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. What powerful words. I'm sure the woman who... By the way, is not Mary Magdalene, as the Catholic Church says. You know, Mary Magdalene had seven demons in her that Jesus cast out. I don't see any demons in this woman. She's an adulteress. Two different people. I just lost my place. Um, but I can just imagine her on the ground, afraid to look up, wanting to know what's going to happen to her, but so fearful that somebody's going to pelt, pelt her with a stone. Because Jesus said, go ahead. If you have no sin, if you're without sin, and perhaps the sin that he's speaking of is, has to do with something he wrote on the ground. I don't know if it meant sin ever. You know, because the religious leaders were given authority by God to enact capital punishment on people. Perhaps they had taken a bribe. 
In Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality or take a bribe. You know, who knows what their sin was? But whatever it was, they are convicted to their core. I can just imagine them trembling at the sight of what Jesus has done and the words that he speaks. And then verse 8, it says, Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. How many times did God write the Ten Commandments? Twice, right? Moses threw him down the first time, and then God tells him in uh, Exodus 34, 1, And the Lord God said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So twice he wrote on them. And again, in John's Gospel, I mean, Jesus is God. Every time you turn around, John is saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is the great I am. He is the shepherd of Israel. That's what he wants to record. Verse 9, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. What a sight this must have been, right? These self-righteous, religious bigots. Jerks, throwing down all their stones and walking out of the temple, walking out of the courts. I love Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. By his knowledge, he shall justify many. He knew their sins. He knew their sins, and he used it against them to save this woman. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And these men cannot stand. And so us, you try to justify yourself. Is it the most frustrating thing when you're trying to show somebody Jesus, when you're trying to tell them about Jesus, and all they do is justify themselves? You're like, well, that's sin. Yeah, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. I just want to slap them silly. Like, you have to see your sin. You have to see your need. You must, or you're going to burn in hell forever. Forever. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. For every idle word, for every empty word, perhaps even for the words that they don't speak, like Jesus is Lord, save me. They will have to give an account. And the only way to be found righteous in him is to be hidden in him, right? Hidden in Christ, covered by the blood, by his sacrifice. It says in Colossians 3.3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I just wonder why the oldest first? Maybe they were the the ones who actually witnessed this? Or perhaps as you get older, you get a little bit more humble, maybe. I don't really see it with these Pharisees, though. You know, I think of myself. The older, the more I walk with the Lord, the less I sin. But the more I repent. Right? Does that kind of define your life? The more I know the Lord, the less I sin, but also the more I repent, the more I see my need for him day by day. Hour by hour, moment by moment. 
the more I see my flaws, the more I see how I despise his word in my heart. And so perhaps they just have a bit of maturity that the younger men don't. Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And the word woman here, it's, a, it's, it's respectful. It's what he called his mother before he made the water into wine. He said woman. Not woman? You know, woman. And she said, no one, Lord. And a lot of commentators say, she's probably just saying sir. I don't buy that. I think she's saying no one, Lord. Um, Kyrios. No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The one who is without sin, the one who has the right to strike her dead, says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How could Jesus say that, though? How could he say that to an adulterer? To somebody who's really, truly despised God's word in her heart? Who has caused stumbling for a man and his family and for her own family? Who has sinned against God? What did David say when he sinned against um, God with Bathsheba? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. So how can he possibly say, neither do I condemn you? Is he unjust? Is he unrighteous? No. How can he say such a thing, though? When it says in the word of God, it says, the soul that sins shall surely die. Doesn't it seem like a contradiction? How can he clear the guilty when at the same time he says he won't? Exodus 34, 6, it says, And the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, be merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you see the contradiction there? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty? How can you forgive and not clear the guilty at the same time? Job 10.14 says, If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I sin, you mark me. You won't acquit me. You won't set me free. You won't declare me innocent of my iniquity. Isaiah 45, 21, I think, gives um, another contradiction. It says, tell them, bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior? There is none besides me. How can he be just God and a Savior? a just, righteous judge, and a savior at the same time. Romans 3, 19 through 26 gives the answer. Go ahead and go there. Romans 3, 19. Romans 3, verse 19 through 26, it says... 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So that's what the law is for, to make us all guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Do you guys all remember what propitiation means? The removing of wrath by a gift, right? And it says, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus is both just and the justifier because he took the penalty upon himself. He became our propitiation, right? You guys have probably all heard the the, um, illustration that almost every pastor uses of the judge. And this boy is brought up before him, and he had been driving recklessly and done damage to property and everything like that. And uh, the judge just so happens to be his father. I don't think it's a true story. I don't know if they would allow that. Maybe in a really small town where there's like one judge, right? Like Rollins, Wyoming or something like that. Um, and the, uh, the judge is, is sitting up there in his robe. He's high above his son. And his son goes, Dad. And he says, don't call me Dad. And here I am your honor. You're going to respect my office. You're going to respect my title. And he says, you've done this. You've damaged all this property. And therefore, you're going to be fined I'm just going to throw a number out there, $1,500. And the boy says, you know I don't have that kind of money. You know I can't make that kind of money. And he says, the answer is final. The judgment is final. He puts down the gavel. And then he gets down, takes off his robe, and goes to the bailiff and starts handing out the money. He says, up there I'm your judge, but down here I'm your father. So he was just, and yet he took care of his son. Christ has done so much more. He's just and the justifier. We are declared innocent before God. And then also children, children of God, and heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Every time I say that, get excited. You know, like that song, I'll fly away, old glory. You know, one of these days, we're going to receive what he has promised to us. It's going to be the most amazing thing that's going to surpass anything that you could possibly think of. Verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I thought this was fitting because his opponents are in darkness. They walked out into the shadows to hide from the light that has been given, and yet he pours out his light on this woman. And all is loving. Again, how can he say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more? Because he knows that the cross is coming. He knows what he is going to do for this woman. So he's not unjust. 
And at the same time, he's fully loving, merciful. So just a couple applicative points from this. Um, Number one, prayer. Jesus spent all night on the Mount of Olives alone. How much do you pray? How much do you give yourself to him? Is it only when it's convenient? Is it only when there's no pain in it? Is it only when you feel like you have the right words? Sometimes you have to kind of beat yourself into submission. I'm not talking about asceticism, you know, or like whip yourself or anything like that, but you have to take a hold of yourself. And you have to let those prayers be pulled out of you. You know, because your flesh is going to try to stop it. Also, do you make judgments on people out of self-righteousness or compassion? Are you self-righteous righteous, or are you compassionate? God has forgiven you. God has forgiven me. More sins against an infinite God than anybody else could ever do to us. So are you compassionate towards those around you? When you see a Christian stumbling and falling, do you judge them and point your finger? Or do you pick them up and love on them? So let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you so much for your word today. I thank you for the encouragement, Lord, that... um, Neither are we condemned. It says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we thank you so much for that. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to be bold for you. Draw us into prayer. I know that even when we're in prayer, we're not by ourselves because you're with us. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit at all times. So, Lord, we thank you so much, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.